continuing in our series in the Gospel of John this morning. And this morning we are looking at part two of the work of the Holy Spirit. Last week we began looking at both John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 in what is the most extensive teaching about the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Last week we focused on, in particular, how the Holy Spirit works in the Christian. And this week we're focusing on how the Holy Spirit works in the life of a non-Christian and how the Holy Spirit is at work in our world. So if you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, or you're not a Christian, or you're not yet a Christian, this is what is necessary for the Spirit to do in your life for you to come to know the living God. And this is also what is necessary for you here who are Christians, that as you pray for God to be at work in other people's lives, this is what is necessary for how God needs to be at work in their lives. So here is the word of the Lord from John chapter 16. We're looking at verses 7 through 11 in this short little piece. It says this, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Skipping down to verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, Send your spirit. Send your spirit to attend to your words that you would draw us to yourself, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we might know you deeply and that we would know you intimately. Holy Spirit, come. We pray in your son's name, amen. There's a man by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in the United Kingdom, and he was identified that he was a preacher of the course of the 20th century, and he was referred to that he was to England, and he was to the UK in the 20th century, what Charles Spurgeon was in the 18th century, if you knew who that was. And Lloyd-Jones had a remarkable life, and he had a remarkable ministry in the way that the Holy Spirit used him. What's particularly fascinating about him is that he was a physician at the highest levels of society. He grew up, he was a Welshman. He grew up in a Welsh town, and then subsequently he excelled academically, and he went and became a physician in London. And while he was serving as, as a physician... He was serving both the lowest of society economically and also those who were of the highest places in in society, the king and queen and several prime ministers themselves. And while he was in the midst of this service, he came to a deep conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life. And it began like this as he was reflecting upon the patients that he served. Here's what is stated about him. That the most powerful influence in all of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' complete change of direction is this. 
It was the fact of sin. The evidence that something is profoundly wrong with humankind itself. Now, he's going to give two different characterizations here. One, of working with those who were the most poor, and also of working with those who were the wealthiest in society. He states this, He observed that in the, among London's poor, with whom he often had to mix while he was at the hospital, and while undertaking his training in obstetrics, in some of the roughest areas of the city, he met with conditions of ungodliness of which he had no conception in the rural town in Wales in which he was raised. After all, he wasn't surprised by this, he said, it was stated, because wrongdoing among the poorer classes was, so it was said, readily explicable. It was merely a problem of education, housing, and economic development. Change their conditions and their environment, and all would be well. But if the theory was correct, that man is morally neutral and only needs help and education in order to be good, it ought to have been demonstrated among his wealthiest and most educated patients. As I mentioned, he was the personal physician to the king and also to several prime ministers and the personal physician to the royal family. As Lloyd-Jones moved in these circles, he found such people altogether as needy as anyone whom he had met in the roughest areas of the city, for their basic need was still untreated. The diagnosis and the diagnoses that he learned in medical school did not go far enough. And so he was assigned to reclassify the files that he had on all of the aristocracy and all the royalty of London. And as he was reclassifying him under the chief of medicine, what he noted was this, that as many as 70% of these cases and illnesses could not be classified under recognized medical criteria at all. They would say things like this, this person eats too much, they drink too much, and similar comments that pointed to signs and symptoms with origin normally outside the province of medicine. And what Lloyd-Jones discovered was that man, in his fundamental need, was most in need of a changed relationship to God. And for most people, that had not changed at all. And referring to the wealthy and the educated versus the poor, he said, all the changes about which men boast so much are external, he said. They are not changes in the person himself, but merely in the mode of his activity and his environment. The real problem, he observed, was in their case notes that he saw, that it was neither medical, nor intellectual, nor a lack of ed education. It was one of moral emptiness and of spiritual hollowness. So as the Holy Spirit began to work in his life more deeply, Lloyd-Jones observed this. He said, the terrible, tragic fallacy of the last hundred years, this is into the 19th century, has been to think that all of man's troubles are due to his environment, and that to change the man, you have nothing to do but to change his environment. This is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was at paradise, in paradise, that man fell. What he is identifying is it overlooks the fact that man's core problem, no matter which level of society that you are in, is not education, but man's core problem 
is a person's individual relationship with the living God. And it was through this observation of ministering to both the economically poor and the highly educated and the royalty of society that the Holy Spirit began to work in his life and began to bring him under conviction. Our text tells us that this role of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. When he comes, he will convict the world. Now, Many of us don't think of the Holy Spirit, I would say, typically as the one who brings in this term here for conviction. Other terms that we saw last week were that the Holy Spirit is called a helper or another helper. He is called the counselor, the spirit of truth. He is called an advocate. All of those terms always contain an element of encouragement, an element of coming alongside and bearing responsibility, carrying someone's responsibility. So last week we saw how the Holy Spirit makes a home for us and makes a home in us, gives us his presence, teaches us with his truth, and makes us fruitful. That's what he does in the life of the believer. But in the world, here's what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. What does it mean? To convict is to prove guilty, to cross-examine. Same words used in John chapter 3, where it says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That The work of conviction is a work of exposing, of exposing one who does evil, one who hates the light. This work of conviction is the work of a prosecutor, of someone who comes up to the witness stand and cross-examines a person. So on the one hand, the Holy Spirit is a helper. He is a counselor. But he is also the prosecutor to bring conviction. text tells us three ways that he does so, very clearly stated. He will convict the world concerning sin. He will convict the world concerning righteousness. And he will convict the world concerning judgment. So what does the Holy Spirit do? What is necessary for the Holy Spirit to work in a person's life to bring them to faith in Christ? And it requires all three of these things. Some people have one and not the other ones, but it actually requires all three. Let's dive in and take a look at them. What needs to happen is that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin. That's what the text tells us. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. It tells us why. Concerning sin, because they do not not believe in me. They do not believe in Jesus. So what's happening here when it convicts of sin? Why is this necessary? It's necessary just because this is just simply the way that life works. Let me give you another example. How do you convince someone who doesn't want to go to the doctor to go to the doctor? How do you convince them? How would you convince someone who's like, who, what do you do? Well, you begin to explain to them all the things that are wrong with them. You explain to explain to them how their health is failing, how their mobility has decreased, how they're going to, their lifespan is going to be shortened, how they're at risk for all kinds of diseases. In short, what you do is you prosecute them, right? You, you cross-examine them, not because, and you do so because you love them. And then what happens is that when you go to see the doctor in order to get better, the doctor has to give you the bad news before he can give you the good news. Similarly, the Holy Spirit needs to convince the world 
and convince us of our guilt and the, and the power of our sin in our lives in order that we could be set free from it. But that conviction is not a pleasant experience. What does it feel like to be convicted by the Holy Spirit because of sin in your life? It feels like there is a giant weight of guilt that is weighing you down. What does it feel like to be cross-examined by the Holy Spirit because of your conduct? It feels like you are being interrogated and that you are squirming in your seat and you would rather be anywhere else but under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But it is necessary. And it's that conviction that began to lead Dr. Lloyd-Jones to a faith in Christ. It wasn't just what he saw in his patience, but it was this, was the growing recognition which came to his own sinfulness. He saw that the diagnosis had to go further. He learned from both Scripture and his own experience that he was dead to God and opposed to God. And he found the ruling principle of self-centeredness and self-interest in his own heart and the final proof of his fallen nature and of his wrong relationship with God. Here's how he characterized it. He said, I am a Christian solely and entirely because of the grace of God and not because of anything that I have thought or said or done. He brought me to know that I was dead, dead in trespasses and sin, a slave to the world, the flesh and the devil, that in me dwelled no good thing and that I was under the wrath of God heading for eternal punishment. He brought me to see the real cause of all my troubles and ills and that of all men was an evil and fallen nature which hated God and loved sin. My trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but that I myself was wrong at the very center of my own being. And he came to see that his outward life had been a little bit more than play acting. The real truth was that he had been seeking, was that he had been seeking to escape God. But the Holy Spirit began working this conviction in his life, and this conviction of sin, and this conviction of what he has done, and even who he is. Here is what the implication of this teaching for you, is that some of you, your experience of Christianity is you want to run from it. You want to run from it because there are aspects of it that make you feel uncomfortable. And maybe today was the day that you decided to come to church, or a friend brought you to church today, and all of a sudden, you hear this aspect about sin, you're like, this is why I don't like going to church, because I don't want to have to deal with this. I don't want to have to think about this. But here is the, what is necessary, is that you cannot become a Christian unless you get a sense, a deep sense, that the Spirit of God himself is dealing with you, that he is cross-examining you that he is exposing you and convicting you of your guilt and convicting you of the sh your shame and convicting you of your sin. And that is not a comfortable place to be. But I would appeal to you not to run from it. Not to run from it. And I'll put it even more bluntly. I deeply hope that if you've been one that's been flirting with Christianity, that you've been investigating Christianity at various levels, I deeply hope that the Holy Spirit convicts you and gives you a disturbing and unsettling burden of guilt. I deeply hope that. And the reason why this conviction is so necessary 
is because it's kind of like convincing someone to go to the doctor. You have to get the bad news before you can get the good news. Because you do not have the resources within yourself to deal with the guilt of your own sin. And the conviction of sin is necessary so that you would see and that you would come to know Jesus Christ. This is made clear in the second half of verse 8. The Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin concerning sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. It's necessary to have the conviction of sin so that you turn to Jesus Christ. It's necessary for the patient to realize what's wrong with them so that they go to the doctor. It's necessary to have the persecution of the Holy Spirit to expose the problem and peril of your sin so that you would turn and believe in Jesus Christ so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be set free, so that the weight of guilt would be removed from you and you could live in the freedom and the joy of a relationship that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. But as I mentioned at the beginning, it is entirely possible to be convicted of sin and not become a Christian. It's entirely possible. You see it in in our culture all the time. People that feel really bad, they feel like they've done something really wrong, and so their response to that is to say, well, I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to make up for it in some way. Which is why that's the first conviction that's necessary. But the second conviction that is necessary is for the Holy Spirit to convict you of righteousness. Verse 10 says this, concerning righteousness, here's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What's being stated here? That the second conviction that we need to have and that the world needs to have if you're going to become a follower of Jesus is the complete and total conviction of the utter failure and inadequacy of your own righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? It's that which gives you a sense of being right. It is what makes you feel right before God and right before other people. It is what you look to to give you your position and your standing in the world. It is your sense of rightness. It is your sense of standing. It is how you would measure yourself and on what basis you would measure yourself. To make this clear, I'm going to give a couple different pictures of this. Richard Lovelace gives a beautiful picture. He says this. He says, the faith that surmounts this evidence, the evidence of our own sinfulness, and that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love. Instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of holiness. The faith that surmounts the evidence of our own sinfulness and is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of stealing love and self-acceptance from other sources, instead of, instead of stealing a sense of rightness from other sources, instead of stealing a sense of righteousness standing from other sources in this world, that is actually the root of holiness. So let me ask you, where do you seek to warm yourself instead of God's love? Where do you attempt to steal love and self-acceptance from people around you? 
that you find your, your worth and your value and your significance in what? How many friends you have? How compassionate you are? How productive you are in the workplace? How good of a spouse you are? Here is a test of where you are finding your own righteousness. And complete the sentence. I'm not the type of person who... How would you answer that? I'm not the type of worker, I'm not the type of employee who... What would you say? I'm not the type of Christian who... I'm not the type of spouse or friend who... And as you identify those things, you will start to see the things that you use to measure yourself in this world and to compare yourself in this world. And what's necessary is a conviction that your righteousness, that the very best that you have to offer, is totally and wholly inadequate. That you going around and warming yourself in other people's approval, warming yourself and trying to gain control, warming yourself at the success that you have achieved, that all of those things are counterfeits to the righteousness offered in Jesus Christ. Here's another picture. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness because the world, quite simply, has a relative view of righteousness. Relative meaning it varies and it changes, kind of like the degrees on a thermometer. So the way that we tend to think about it, our world tends to think about it, is this. You know, that you know, someone who is a, who's a, you know, a mass murderer, convict, I mean, they're, they're bad, but there's probably still a little bit of good in them. So, I don't know, maybe they're at like 10% or, or maybe they're at 20% on, on the scale. And then people who are, I mean, good people, you know, our kind of people, good people. I mean, they're at least half good because they do good most of the time. So they're at least half good. Maybe they're up to 60%. And then maybe someone who is, who's really good, who's, who's really doing it, they're, they're even, maybe they're even up to, 100, up to 80%. Now, of course, if we're Christians, we would say, well, of course, we know that Jesus is 100%. What's so skewed about this logic is several things, but it begins with, is that we begin to think that we, there are levels of degrees of righteousness that can make us acceptable to God. But this is problematic in several different ways. It's problematic because our scale on our thermometer is distorted and perverted, is that our heart and our world are the hearts, our own hearts, and the world distorts what is truly righteousness. Isaiah says a day is going to come, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's happened is that what's good, what's right, has gotten completely skewed and distorted and perverted. Timothy makes this clear as well. Now, start to tick through these things as you see them in our world, and then you're gonna, I'm going to identify what the real problem is. For people, we'll be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. People will be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here is the real issue with all of these. 
It's not just simply that those things are bad, but people do those bad things with the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, he says. What does that mean? Is that everyone would say, yeah, someone who's a lover of money, someone who's selfish, someone who's arrogant and abusive. Oh, of course, we all know those are bad things. But here is the distortion of our scale of righteousness, is that people do those things with the appearance of godliness, with the appearance that they've got it all together, with the appearance of doing it right, so that there are people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant, with an appearance of godliness. Oh, they're so holy. Look how they've got their life together. There are people who are disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, and we say, way to go. That's the way it should be. There are people who come along who are heartless, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and they do all of that with the appearance of godliness. That sin is being called good, and good is being called sin, and the whole thing is becoming distorted. And the issue is not just that our society distorts these things, but what's more terrifying is that my own heart does that. Is that my own heart, that what my heart really wants, when my heart really, really wants something, I will justify it in any way possible. You know, and as Tim Keller said, he said, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that fits. The will finds doable. Yeah, this won't be a problem. We can get this done. And the affections find valuable is that what my heart most wants when it is not the things of the Lord, what my heart most wants is that my heart in an instant will swap out the scale of righteousness and create a scale of wickedness and call it righteousness. So the first problem is that it's a perverted scale. But another problem is that we have a wrong, the scale on the scale is wrong altogether. Matthew says this, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we look at the scale and say, okay, well, maybe I'm at, you know, 60% or I'm at 20% or I'm at 80% where we, where we evaluate ourselves. The problem with a percentage basis is that you think that the scale goes from six, like it's a 10-point scale. And so you're on a 10-point scale, and you think, you know what? I've got 6 out of 10. That's pretty good. 7 out of 10. That's pretty good. The problem is it's not a 10-point scale. It's at least a 100-point scale. Right? It's at least a 100-point scale. And so our scale is completely off and wrong. And the biggest problem with our thermometers, the biggest problem is that we are measuring ourselves, or that you are measuring yourself with your thermometer. That you are measuring yourself according to your righteousness and your value as you decide it and as you determine it. Here's the way this works out and what Scripture is calling us to. Is that there are different ways that somebody can relate to God. Is that you can try to relate to God on the basis of the things that you do, how acceptable you are in terms of what other people think of you, how much you've achieved, if you're, a, if you're a good person and not a bad person, as you deem your scale, you can relate to God on the basis of what you do. Or the other option is that you can relate to God and have a relationship with God, not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done and what has been accomplished. Now, with these two different ways of relating to God, 
both of these produce a righteousness. Both of these produce a sense of what makes you right, what gives you standing, and what gives you position. Both of them do this. But if you relate to God on the, on the basis of what you do, that produces a righteousness that is generated from yourself. That would be called a self-righteousness. The other option is to relate to God and have a relationship with God on the basis of what Christ has already done. On the basis of Christ's righteousness. You see, people wrongly think that, Christians, that the Christianity is, about, is just about being a good person and doing more good things. They think it's about self-righteousness. And quite frankly, Christians, we need to own that, that that's what we've communicated too many times. But we think that it's about self-righteousness, us becoming, doing, doing, more, doing more stuff, making ourselves acceptable to God. But what the New Testament testifies to again and again and again and again and again is that we need to be convicted and repent not only of our sin, but we need to repent of our righteousness. We need to repent of the things that we think give us standing before God and other people. Indeed, this is what Paul says in Romans. For by works of the law, the things that you do, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What Paul is saying, a self-generated righteousness is worthless. And he goes on to say this. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he lays out there's two types of righteousness. There is one that comes out of yourself and there is one that is the righteousness of God that comes and is received through faith in Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I was, in a, I was in a small group with some other pastors. And they were sharing their story, their sense of call into ministry. And one of the pastors said this. He said, I was 19 years old when the Lord convicted me of my righteousness, and I turned and I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was 27 years old when the Lord convicted, did I say that wrong? He said, I was 19 years old when the Lord convicted me of my sin, and I turned and trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He said, but I was 27 years old when the Lord convicted me of my righteousness, and I turned and trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. When do you think he became a Christian? When he was 27. It was when he despaired not only of his wrong, but he also realized that the things that he offered couldn't stand before God. And that's what Jesus is teaching here about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Why is this concerning righteousness? What's Jesus teaching here? It is simply this. Who can stand before the righteousness of God? The psalmist declared, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who was right before you? Who could stand before you? Indeed, Paul testifies in another passage about the joy of being found in Christ and saying, being found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, when I stand before God, there is only one who can stand before God Almighty. And the only one who can stand before God Almighty is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that by faith and putting my faith and trust in him, I can have his righteousness Because he lived a perfect life. Because he went to the cross and paid the penalty for my sin, took the punishment due to me. He was the one who rose from the grave and who stands at the right hand of the Father. And because he stands at the right hand of the Father, I can be set free. Because his righteousness stands. But as I mentioned at the beginning, there are three convictions that are necessary. You need to be convicted of sin. You need to be convicted of righteousness, despairing of your own. You can be convicted of those things and still not be a Christian. There's a third conviction that is necessary, which is the conviction of judgment. And that's what the Holy Spirit says he does. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world will be, the ruler of this world is judged. Notice the phrasing there. It is not that the ruler of this world will be judged. But right now, because Jesus died and rose again, right now, the ruler of this world is judged. What that means is that all false judgments come from him who was a liar since the beginning. And if he, the ruler of this world, has been condemned by the triumph of the cross, so also are all of his judgments. And they do not stand. And so the third conviction that is necessary is a conviction of your sin, a conviction of your righteousness and the righteousness of Christ. And the third conviction that is necessary is a conviction to know that there is one Lord and there is one judge, and it is not the ruler of this world, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, whose judgment do you live in fear of? Whose judgment do you live in fear of? I mean, when I was in school, man, I was terrified of my friend's judgment. I mean, I wanted my friends to view me a certain way. I saw there were certain people, certain friends of mine who, I mean, they got lots of attention. They were the ones who seemed never to be made fun of. They were the ones that people always seemed to want to be around them. And man, if I could just get them to like me, man, it would have been so much easier, or so I thought. Whose judgment do you live in fear of? It's a ghost from your past. That you're driven to success, however you define it, in the workplace, in the community, in your home, in your school. That you're driven to success because you are so determined that you're not going to be anything like the family that you came from. And the voice of that person in your childhood who told you that you were a failure, the parent who told you that you didn't count. And so you have been living in fear of this perceived judgment that they would be one who would condemn you. And so you've been working so hard because you're going to prove to them that their judgment doesn't stand. And Jesus would exhort us and say this, Do not fear those who kill the body. 
and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Fear him. And the reason why we do not fear the ruler of this world or his minions or his wannabes or the judgments that stem forth from him is because the judge of this world has been condemned. And he is judged and is defeated by the victory of Jesus Christ over the grave. John makes clear in Revelation, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The ruler of this world and his dominions and his opinions are the ones who stand before you, condemning you, judging you, saying this one's guilty, this one's not worthy, this one doesn't measure up, this one doesn't have enough rightness, this one's righteousness and fa- fails. And the third conviction that is necessary <laughs> is the conviction that the ruler of this world is judged And that there is only one judge who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have turned to him and you are trusting in him and you are believing in him, here is the good news. Who shall bring any charge against God's God's elect? What charge will stand? It is God who justifies, not the judges of this world. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He has conquered. He is victorious. And he is the one who is interceding for us. So if you are a Christian, be encouraged that your sin is paid for, that your righteousness is secure, that the ruler and rulers of this age render no judgment against you because there is one Lord and one judge, and if you are in Christ, you are his, and the judgments of this world do not stand against you. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, as I mentioned at the beginning, this message is actually for you who are not Christians. Or this message is for you who have been flirting with being a Christian. Or you've called yourself a Christian, but you've only had one or two of these convictions, but not all of them, and that conviction hasn't led you to Jesus. And so I would invite you with this, that if the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning, that as he is convicting you of the guilt of your sin, that you realize that the weight of it is upon you, that the Spirit has been cross-examining you, and you see that your sin is far more hideous than you can imagine. If the Holy Spirit has been convicting you of the vanity and the emptiness of your own righteousness and the futility of stealing love and self-acceptance from all the people around you, if the Holy Spirit has been convicting you that your thermometer that you use to measure yourself and everyone else is distorted, skewed, and worthless, If the Holy Spirit is convicting you that the judge of this world has a voice and you begin to realize that he does not, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of these things and if you're sensing your sin, especially against Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit in his grace is at work in your life. And you had better listen and pray like you have never prayed before. And pray to your heavenly Father and say to him, 
God, I confess that I am guilty of my sin, that there is no one to blame but myself. I confess that my own righteousness falls so far short, and it cannot make me right with you. And I confess that the only way that I can stand before your judgment is not on my own righteousness, but only because of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I ask that you forgive me of my sin, of my righteousness, that you forgive me of fearing the judges of this world. And I believe and I trust that Jesus Christ is the one who lived and died and rose from the grave, and he did so for me. And so if you are under the conviction of the Spirit this morning, I invite you right now to pray and express those things to God himself and that you would believe in Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and as your Savior. And you can do that in the moments of silence. You can do that in the prayers that we'll have in a few moments. You can do it during the song. After the service, come find me, come find one of our elders or leaders, and they would love to pray with you so that you would be set free to know Jesus Christ. For you here who are Christians, what this passage means in particular is that you need to be praying and praying regularly for the conviction of the Holy Spirit of those who attend our church. That when you wonder how to pray for your family members who are non-Christians in your workplace who, is not, who are not Christians, and you wonder how to pray for missionaries and for church prants, and you wonder how to pr- pray for our college campuses, this is how you pray. You pray that God would send not only his people, but he would send his spirit, and that he would send his spirit to bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment that people would turn and be set free through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So now, as the people of God, let us join together and indeed pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would send your Spirit, that you would separate your Spirit to liberate the captives, to give recovery of sight to the blind, that you would send your spirit to set people free. Father, for those that aren't yet trusting in you, we pray that you would give them a conviction, an otherworldly conviction, a conviction of their sin, a conviction of their guilt, a conviction of their righteousness, a conviction that the judge of this world is condemned, and that you would send your spirit and put them under conviction so that they would be set free and free to know the freedom that comes through being a child of God, adopted into your family, sins forgiven, shame removed, dignity and beauty restored through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Father, I do pray for those here this morning that are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that this would be the day that they turn and trust in you, the day that you set them free. And Father, we pray for our church at large, our community, our workplaces, our schools, our family members that don't know you, that your spirit would be at work in this world and that he would be at work 
through the power of your spirit, bringing conviction to draw people to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray this not on our own righteousness, but we pray this according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died and rose again, that we would be set free. In his holy name we pray. Amen.